All right, well, I invited the elementary and, and really all the Sunday school classes to come and join us for this series on membership, and it's called Membership Matters. It's matters regarding membership, but it's also um, also could be taken a different way. Membership actually matters. It's important, and that's why we want to, to talk about it today. I think it's important for us as members to understand it, and then any who don't... Um, are not members want to find out more about our church. And so in this next hour, we're going to learn about the history of Ambassador Baptist Church. But in order to adequately do so, we first need to understand a little bit more about Baptists because that's who we are. We are Baptist Church. But in order to understand properly about Baptists, we have to learn about the Protestants. And if we want to learn properly about the Protestants, we have to learn about what they're protesting against and what they sought to reform. We call it the Protestant Reformation, which we'll get to. What were they protesting against? What were they trying to reform? And so we want to learn not only a little bit about the history of this particular assembly, but also help you understand where Ambassador Baptist Church fits in the big picture of what God has done in history. And so you could call this class a study of the time from John the Baptist to Ambassador Baptist. All right, let's begin with um, how God creates. God creates, this is, uh, really, I didn't put a space in there on your handout for this, but um, one of the basic truths that the, that the Bible reveals is that God creates, convicts, con- converts, and conforms His people, and He does it all through His Word. That God's Word is the central to the life of the people. And we see this from the very beginning in the Old Testament with Adam and Eve. We see it even before that when God spoke into existence creation. He didn't simply create. He spoke it into existence. He, he spoke to Adam and Eve. He spoke to Abraham as He calls them out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. And we see it with Moses as well, that God was the spokesperson for not only Moses, but the people as a whole. That's how God creates a people. He does it through speaking. A good illustration of this is found in Ezekiel chapter 37 where you have the, the vision of the, the dry bones, the valley of dry bones. And there Ezekiel is told to speak to them. And when he speaks, there's life given to these bones. And then flesh and, and uh, muscle and things start to form onto the, the bones and, and then you have life. That's exactly what happens when God speaks His Word into existence. And... We see the importance of God's Word in the New Testament most clearly when Jesus came. In John 1.14, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. So do you want to know what God has to say? Then look at Christ because He is the clearest expression of God's revelation to His people. And then we, of course, see Jesus dying for uh, His people on the cross. But um, He didn't save us to be individuals. He saved us into a community. He saved us to be a part of something bigger than us, didn't He? He didn't save us and then just send us off kind of in our own little worlds and, and just do whatever you want. He saved us to be a part of a community. And, and so what we learn from the Scriptures is that, is that the church is not man's idea, it's God's idea. Jesus was the one who founded the church, not the apostles. It wasn't Peter that decided, hey, let's come up with something where we can come together and kind of pull our resources together and maybe come up with some kind of structure that works. 
That's not how it worked. Jesus was the one who created the church and He did it through His Word, through His Spirit. And Jesus also rules the church through His Word. Uh, that that if the word is going to be or if the church is going to be sustained and it's going to grow, it has to happen through the word. There's all sorts of uh, fake ways that the church can grow, or there's there's all sorts of plastic ideas that can be used in order to, to create some body of people. But if it's going to be Christ's church, it has to be done through the word. And so you don't do you know what the apostles did very early on and throughout their ministry? They made it their job to to protect the word. They they gave themselves. Remember Acts two. Let's let's turn there. Acts two. See what the early church gave themselves to. Following the 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 uh, baptism of the Spirit by fire in Acts chapter two. Peter speaks to the people and he calls them out and they say, well, what are we supposed to do? We, we are guilty sinners. What are we to do? And Peter says, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus in verse 38. And then verse 42, uh, let's start in verse 41. So then those who received the Word, notice how uh, the, the Word is the foundation for the church being started or for these people receiving salvation. Those who had received His Word were baptized and that they, they were added about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Uh, some kind of a list? Well, probably some kind of a list that had to do with church membership. Probably a church itself, this church in Jerusalem. They were added to the church. They were continually, verse 42, devoting themselves, notice, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So if the Word of God is what created Christ's church, then it was the Word of God that the people needed to sustain. They needed to, to uh, make sure that they understand, stood it in order to be preserved. They recognized the, the importance from the very beginning of God's Word. And so that's what you have really throughout the, the New Testament. You have the apostles constantly speaking, pointing people back to the Scriptures. But it wasn't long in the early church before error started to creep in. The Apostle Paul warned that there would come a time when people would want, not want to hear sound teaching, 2 Timothy 4. And in that sound teaching, he was talking about the writings of the New Testament. Think about this. Just in the New Testament, the church in one city tolerated perverse sexual immorality among its members. Another church embraced proto-Gnostic heresies. We'll talk about Gnosticism here in just a second. The church in another city showed gross favoritism to the wealthy and powerful. And those are just in the New Testament, Corinthians, Colossians, and James. And as you can imagine, it didn't get any better as time went on. That is, the heresies that started to, to, to come in and the, 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 um, the people pulling away, the error, not only in doctrine but in practice. And so what we have is that the history of the church from the death of the apostles to the 1500s is really a long spread of the church geographically across the globe. It's amazing that just starts, you know, just in Jerusalem and then with persecution and some other things, the church starts to spread. And that's, that's a good thing. But with its spread geographically, it also started to struggle doctrinally, didn't it? 
And so you have these repeated heresies that started to emerge that would um, that would try to to unseat the faith, unseat God as King over the church. And so I, I listed several of those for you that happened throughout the history of the early church, the Gnostic heresy, um, Montanists, the Marcionites, Arians, and Pelagians. So I'm not going to go through all those, but those are there for your benefit to, to read through and, and think through. And what, we, what you should know from those, those uh, various heresies is that, that Solomon was right, that there is nothing new under the sun. Anything that you see today, any of these heresies that come into the church today, are really just repackaging of old doctrines. Doctrines that, that have been around for a long time, right? There, there is nothing new under the sun. Well, in response to these heresies, the church repeatedly returned back to the Scriptures. And they said, you know, what we need to do is we need to see what the Scriptures have to say. But, but what we need to recognize is that this, the church wasn't trying to create new doctrines. Instead, they were trying to rediscover old doctrines, that is, doctrines that were established already in the Scriptures. That's how the church uh, uh, moves forward. It, it does it through um, rediscovering what the Scripture already teaches. They recognized that the Gospel was at stake. And so the early church worked hard to hold fast to the faith uh, through the words of Scripture and as a result, they received much persecution. We know this even in Acts 7 with Stephen being killed. And, and so you had this continual persecution, awful, brutal persecution. And those early church martyrs illustrate for us what it means to be a genuine disciple of Christ. It's someone who's willing to affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord even if it means their very death. And so this brings us to Constantine. So that's all introduction. We want to start to move now a little bit through some of the major um, hooks, I guess you could say, of church history leading up to our church. And, um, and the first one is Constantine. There's per- perhaps no more important figure in the early church than Constantine. He became emperor of Rome in 311 A.D. Um, some of you were still young at that time. In, in 312, he associated himself with Christianity. At that time, persecution was very strong. And, and it was very strong. I mean, that was the time when you had uh, Christians being taken into to a coliseum and for sport would be killed by animals uh, to the pagans who were watching. Or, or, and uh, the pagans were watching. And um, so, Constantine, as the emperor, most powerful position in the entire world, decided that, that he had a vision of God and supposedly had seen some, some words in the sky that, set, that read, in this sign conquer. And whatever that means, he took it to mean that it was a sign from God and that he was supposed to become a Christian. Um, I, I highly doubt his, his Christianity, but, but um, I guess that's for, for the historians to debate. The result was that, that Christianity, which once had been persecuted, Constantine decided that he was now going to make Christianity the favored and official religion of the entire Roman Empire. Okay, and the Roman Empire by this time is spread not just in Rome. Obviously, it's, it's spread all over. And uh, obviously, that was the way it was during the time of Christ as well. And so, it had spread even farther. And he even used an edict, a decree in 313 A.D. to, to make it official. 
Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire. So, no more persecution. But although it did bring an end to the persecution of Christians, it also brought in a lot of worldliness. Just imagine what would happen today if we had a world leader or even our president decide that Christianity is the official U.S. religion. That might reduce the amount of persecution that we get, right? But it would also bring in a lot of worldliness because now you have the government uh, basically uh, being cooperative with the church in a way that they're going to want to have a say. That's exactly what was happening with, with Constantine. So that the leaders of the church would now be determined by the Roman government, right? The Roman civil authorities are going to determine who's the, who are the leaders in the church. And so with that, you have all of these uh, monarchical bishops and even the Pope that, that have uh, authority that is granted to them by, in many cases, the government. And these popes, over the years, claimed to be the representatives for Christ. They thought that their succession was handed down to them by, by Peter himself, right? Peter was the first pope, they would say, and he kind of handed it down from person to person. And, um, and so the pope, in, in the minds of the Romans, was the one who had his word that ruled the church. No longer was it, remember, God's word established the church, it sustained the church. When they started to have heresies creep up, they protected themselves by going back to the word. Now instead, Constantine says, Christianity is the world religion, and now the Pope is the one who decides what the church is going to be all about. Well, over the next many centuries, various people reacted and sought the purity of the church and would try to bring people back to their spiritual identity but the effects were short-lived. And um, meanwhile, popes attempted to consolidate their power and authority because not everyone recognized that the pope in Rome was supremely uh, the supreme ruler. And so, in 1054 A.D., you have that in your handout, after growing further and further apart for, for some 6,000 years, uh, I'm sorry, 600 years, would be a long time, 600 years, the, the Eastern Church broke from the Western Church. And they did it primarily over a few things. First, it was the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And then second, it was over the universal authority that the Pope claimed. They were saying, the Eastern Church was saying, we don't accept the Pope as ruler. Now, they would set up their own, uh, their own rulers that would be equally as, as I would say, evil. Um, but, but they didn't accept the Western Church's Pope, and so they they had this break split called the Great Schism, and this is where we get the Orthodox family of churches. There are 15 Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox churches in all, including the Russian and Greek Orthodox churches, and just a quick survey of our area, you're going to find uh, several of those um, just within a, a short radius of our church. In both the church in the east and the church in the west, the distortion of the authority of the church grew over the centuries and really led to the Dark Ages and that led up to the time of the Reformation. Part of the problem during that time leading up to the Reformation is that the church claimed to forgive original sin. That if you wanted to have your sin forgiven, you don't need to go to Christ. You go to the church. You pay your indulgences. You pay some kind of a fee. And they'll give you something that says your sins are forgiven. And um, 
And uh, it would also be done through baptism, all sorts of uh, confession, penance, all those sorts of things would be used to help pay for your sins. You, you would go to the church to get your sins paid for. And so these are theological innovations that do, are not drawn from the Scripture, but they're developed from a human perspective in order to advance themselves, advance their own position. And they even got to the point where they claimed to dispense God's grace. You want God's grace, you come to me. That is, the church would say that, or the pope or the, the priest. You come to me, that's where God's grace comes from. And during this time, other heresies crept in like... Um, if you do your best, that is a prerequisite to receiving the grace of God. They, they believed in, uh, I mentioned indulgences to earn some kind of a merit, penance to receive forgiveness of sin, purgatory for further purging your sins, and then, and then uh, being made, made holy and justified. And so that, those kinds of heresies, those kinds of trouble uh, with regard to the doctrine led to the Reformation in 15, the 1500s. And it also led to the recovery of the gospel. And and this is important. So, um, any questions so far on what we've looked at? All right, let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Because what, what the church had done for years is that they had taught that Salvation does not come by grace alone. It comes by works. Salvation does not come by faith alone. They, they thought it came by faith, but not by faith alone. And certainly it didn't come by Christ alone. It, it required much more. And so what the Reformation did was to res- restore all of those biblical truths that salvation comes only by grace, only by faith, only by Christ. And um, one of the principal figures of the Reformation was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was born in 1483. He was a monk in Wittenberg, Germany. And he had long struggled with the question of, how can I be accepted by God? And so he would go to his leaders there in the Catholic Church and say, you know, what do I need to do to find out the answer to this question? Because all the, question, or all the responses that I've been getting from the church have not satisfied me. And they tried to give him different positions to try to to, to satisfy his, um, his, uh, his his pursuit of that discovery. They put him. They they made him a monk. Had him study the scriptures. That wasn't enough. He kept asking. They finally put him in a position where he could teach. And two of the passages that he was teaching were uh, the Book of Psalms and the Book of Romans. And as he, he did that, he started to discover something after trying to answer this question. How can I be accepted by God? And this is the verse that he came to. Would someone read verse 17 of Romans 1? Okay, so... Verse 17, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, Luther had always been taught that this meant his righteousness, right? The righteous man shall live by faith. And, 
and he knew that he didn't have it. He didn't he knew that he wasn't righteous enough. But through his study of the Psalms and the and the book of Romans, the Lord brought him to realize that Paul wasn't talking about his own righteous but righteousness, but about an alien righteousness. A righteousness that was outside of himself. The righteous the righteousness that was imputed to him by Christ. That that it wasn't on the basis of his own righteousness that he was notice that that he was um the that that he was made to, to to be declared righteous. The idea of the verse here is, but the one who is righteous shall live by faith. That is the one who's declared to be righteous. He started to understand that this was this had to be given to him from outside of him. He he couldn't build this up on his own. And um, this this was justification that he was he had to be declared righteous before God if he was going to be accepted by God. It wasn't based on his efforts. It wasn't based on what the church could grant to him. It was based on uh, Christ's grace alone. Here's what he, he wrote in his study on this verse. He said, I anxiously and busily worked to understand the word of Paul in Romans 1.17. I questioned this passage for a long time and labored over it for the expression, the righteousness of God barred my way. This phrase was customarily explained to me uh, to, to mean that the righteousness of God is a virtue by which He Himself is righteous and, and He Himself condemns sinners. And so this way, in this way, all the teachers except Augustine had interpreted the passage. They said the righteousness of God at the end of verse 17 is going to lead to the wrath of God. And I, as I often read this passage, I wish that God would never have revealed the gospel to, to me for who could love a God who was angry, who judged and condemned people. You see, for the Catholics, they saw this as the righteous man shall live by works. That, that they are to be accepted by God on the basis of works. And now Luther's coming to understand, before his idea, this is what he's talking about, before I came to the proper understanding, it was, this is talking about God's uh, requirement of righteousness and it's going to bring about His just wrath on me and I don't even want to know this gospel, this Catholic gospel. I don't want to know it because it just makes me see God as angry and one who's going to condemn people. But when he come, came to understand that this righteousness had to be given to him, granted to him, imputed to him, then he called it a sweet exchange. He finally understood that, that the, the righteousness of God had to come from God that Christ bore His sins on the cross, that, that uh, Luther was able to receive the robes of Christ in exchange for His robes of sin, that Christ died as, as a substitute in Luther's place, removing God's wrath. And for the first time in his life, Luther knew the peace of soul that comes through the Gospel of knowing that he was forgiven of his sins. And so... It comes as little surprise that as he started to understand this, he also started to understand the implications of it for the church. What did this mean for what the church is now doing? They're saying that they can dispense grace. They're saying that they can forgive sins. And Luther started to see that what the church is doing is corrupt, particularly in selling salvation by money. You pay the Catholic Church, we'll give you salvation. Just keep paying a little bit more and your your loved one will go to heaven faster, you know, like when they're in purgatory and so on. 
Luther was outraged when he started to realize what this doctrine meant, what the Scriptures meant. He was out, outraged at the Catholic Church. But, but you know, he didn't start to set out a new denomination. You might already be thinking, well, Lutheran churches. But, but actually, he didn't start out to, to, to make a new denomination. Instead, he wanted, to, um, he, he wanted to reform the church. He wanted to change it. He, which I think in some cases, if you think about it carefully, that's probably, that was probably a wise thing for him to do, initially at least. That is, if there's an opportunity to change the doctrine of the church, if you have influence to be able to change it, then do it. Once you see that the ship is heading for an iceberg, it's time to abandon ship, right? If they're not willing to accept, the captain's not willing to change course based on what you've shown to him in Scripture, then it's time to abandon ship. At that point, it would have been right for him to, to leave the church. Uh, but initially, his idea was, you know what? I need to tell the captain of the ship, so to speak, that he's heading for an iceberg and he needs to, to veer off course of where he is currently heading. But Luther, um, he did want to see reform in the church. And so that's why he nailed the 95 theses or the 95 debating points to the wall or the door of the Wittenberg church on October 31st, 1517. So we're coming up on, what is it, 500 years now uh, in a couple of years. The Church of Rome had, wanted nothing to do with this. I mean, it, they were make Luther was making a spectacle of the church, wasn't he? I mean, he he was doing it in the right way. He wasn't trying to be um, a jerk about it. This was just the way that you would handle the situation. You would, if you wanted to debate some of these things that the Catholic Church was teaching, you you put it on some debating points and then nailed it to the door of the church. And the church started to read a lot of Luther's writings, and they didn't like them. And so they had a trial. They put him on trial, the church did, at the Diet of Worms in April 1521. And they called for Luther to withdraw all of his teachings and all of his writings. They, they wanted nothing to do with any of that. And if, they, and if he would, then they would allow him to continue to stay within the church. Here's his reply at that trial. He said, Unless I am convinced by testimonies of the Scriptures or by clear arguments that I am in error. For popes and councils have often erred and contradicted themselves. Then I cannot withdraw. For I am subject to the Scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. It is unsafe and dangerous to, to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. Amen. And for this stand, Luther was condemned by Rome. They said, we, you're, you are condemned from our church. Go away from us. He was an outcast. But what Rome condemned when it condemned Luther was not an innovator or a revolutionary with some novel ideas. What Rome was condemning was the biblical gospel. For what Luther affirmed was that the Scripture was the final authority. He says, unless you can convince me from the Scriptures, which are not an error, that if you can convince me from there that I am an error, then I will, I will recant. But, but popes have often contradicted themselves, haven't they? And they all knew that, that they had. 
And so, he said, if they can contradict themselves, then we have to have some kind of standard that we go back to. And it's not popes. It is the Scripture. And so you need to convince me from the Scripture that what I'm saying is not true. Of course, they didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so they condemned Luther. And in so doing, I think they condemned the Gospel, saying, we don't accept what God has told to us in, this, in, in the Scriptures. You see, Luther did something very important that still stands for us today, and that is he made for himself the Scripture as the final authority of his faith and practice. It was going to be, if he wanted to know what God thought and what God wanted him to do, he was going to go to the Scriptures. That's key because that was for a long time lost in the dark ages of church history. And, um, of course, you know that during the Protestant Reformation, there were others besides Luther. We we tend to think about Luther uh, and about this great stand that he had, but he wasn't the first or the only person to recognize the problems within the Roman church. What God was doing during that time was also working through other men uh, in different parts of Europe. Ulrich Zwingli was being used in Zurich, Germany, and John Calvin was being used in Geneva, Switzerland. And even before them in the Middle Ages, you can look up people like John Wycliffe in the 14th century, the first one to make an English Bible. Um, John Huss was burned at the stake in the 15th century. But it was Luther that God used in a unique way to recover the faithful preaching and the teaching of the Gospel so that the church would never be the same Again. All right, any questions on the Reformation? Well, out of the Reformation came several... Remember, we're trying to figure out where our church came from. And uh, so we, we start with the history of the, the early church. Now we're at the Reformation. And out of the Reformation came several strands of Protestants or those who protested against the abuse and the heresy of Rome, of the Roman church. So, if you were to look up in the dictionary the word Protestant, you would get something like this. this is from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It says, A member, a Protestant, is a member of any of several church denominations denying the universal authority of the Pope and affirming the Reformation principles of justification by faith alone, the priesthood of all believers and the primacy, the authority of the Bible as the only source of revealed truth. That's what a Protestant is. Now, we'll talk about what the priesthood of all believers means when we talk about when we look at our class on, on Baptists, what, why, are we, why we are Baptists. But, but the first one is important, that we deny the universal authority of the Pope and we believe in justification by faith alone. That's a Protestant. And so what you need to recognize is that we, our church, Baptist churches, are not the only Protestants. There are many types of Protestants that came as a result of the Reformation and that would believe in the same gospel as us. That is, they, they still demand that a person comes to Christ alone for their salvation. For example, the Lutherans. Not surprising, there was a group of people that, that started as a result of Martin Luther. When Martin Luther found out about that, he was furious that people would call themselves after his name because he said, it's not about me. And uh, so Luther actually didn't start the Lutherans. Another group started it and, and uh, held to his principles, which really are biblical principles, uh, as they saw them. The Lutherans affirmed a biblical understanding of the gospel as we do. 
uh, the supreme authority of the Scripture, the priesthood of all believers, but they also maintain some of the Catholic doctrines. So what you can think of as Lutherans as a kind of a almost an in-between kind of position. If you've ever been to a Lutheran service, you know that they're very formal in their in their services. Lots of uh, you know uh, priestly type of garb and um, and uh, and those kinds of things that are going on. The 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 Baptism is very Catholic, right? It's infant baptism. And the Lord's Supper is very much, very similar, not exactly the same, where the, the Catholics believe that the, the bread and the cup actually become the body and blood of Christ. That's the Catholics. The Lutherans don't go that far, but they're really close. Uh, we see it more as a memorial, right? That's just It doesn't change us or anything. It doesn't change anything in our body. It doesn't turn into anything. It's just a memorial. It's a remembrance so that we can not forget about what Christ did for us. So the Lutherans are kind of the in-between position between Catholics. Remember, they're not trying to come up with a brand new religion. They're trying to rediscover what they think is right. And so they see some good things in the Catholic Church. They hold on to those, in their view, good things. You know, we, we see them and say, well, you should have left all of it. But, but, but then they also see some other biblical principles they need to turn from and, and turn to. And so Lutherans, the other Protestant offshoots, during that time were Anabaptists. So uh, those were they, those were ones who actually rejected infant baptism. So when Catholics, uh, when a when a young child comes uh, with his parents to church, he's he's baptized at a young age, and that's supposed to somehow give him uh, some kind of a, a grace or or grant him forgiveness at a young age. But the Anabaptists rejected that. They said, no, that's not biblical. Baptism was by immersion, and so they 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 did it that way. They also, however, uh, questioned original sin. That's what we're going to talk about this morning in Romans five. They they didn't think that it, every person sinned in Adam. They thought that each person kind of decided as they went, and they rejected civil authority. That the government is not our leader. We don't have to uh, listen to them. They embraced pacifism, and in some extreme cases, the Anabaptists also allowed for and really taught polygamy and anarchy. So so that's another Protestant offshoot. And then you have from there also the Reformed churches, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and the Church of England. And uh, out of them, you, you have more of a... Again, all these are going to believe in justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. But but um, then they're going to do their worship and baptism differently. But those are the Reformed churches, and out of that last group, the Reformed churches, is where we get Baptist churches. Baptist churches didn't come from Anabaptists. Baptist churches have not always been around. I joked earlier that from John the Baptist to Ambassador Baptist, that was a joke because there haven't been Baptist churches throughout church history. For the first 1,600 years of church history, there were no Baptist churches. Okay. They didn't start until the 1600s. And that doesn't mean it's a brand new religion. Instead, it was actually a rediscovering of biblical principles. And that was simply the name that they gave themselves were the Baptists, obviously because one of their important, uh, important tenets or beliefs was that a person was baptized following salvation by immersion. And so they were happy to, to call themselves that. As early as 1608, some in the Church of England, such as John Smith, were rejecting infant baptism. But by the middle of the 17th century, a small group of Congregationalists in England 
were kind of pulling away from that and starting to become what we call now Baptists. And it's out of that Reformed stream that the Baptists come. And so at the same time that you have some Puritans in England realizing that the Bible commended baptism by immersion for believers, at the same time you have over here in the New World in the United States, you have Roger Williams and 11 other believers meeting in Providence, Rhode Island, and Roger Williams founded the first Baptist church in America in 1639. The congregational authorities didn't like his beliefs, they didn't like what he was teaching, and they exiled him for that. And so he sought this charter colony that would that would grant religious freedom so that he could start his church. Now, Williams himself, if you study his his story, it's it's pretty crazy, but he actually goes off the deep end theologically uh following this. But um but his principles that he had founded with these eleven or had rediscovered with these eleven people um still stand the test of time. And um And these Baptists shared their confessional understanding of faith. That is, that a sovereign God saves us not on the basis of our works or of our wise choice, but through the grace that comes through Christ's work on the cross. Well, following uh, this establishment of this Baptist church in 1639, the Baptists really started to spread at at an amazing rate in the United States to the point where in the 18th century it became one of the top denominations, I guess you could call it. They they had focused on personal conversion, the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of worship services. Again, not, not a big pomp and circumstances. It's not about us. It's about worshiping God. They focused on individual conscience. They dev- focused on congregational rule. We'll talk about that in a few classes from now. And they appealed to this new democratic kind of nation. At the end of the 19th century, 1800s, when the church was being founded, the Christianity started to face some new errors and threats. And uh, the primary one was theological liberalism. Theological liberalism and modernism, which you have all these people that once said the Scriptures are the final authority. Now liberalism, theological liberalism, comes along and says, well, is this really what the Scriptures say? Or is this really true? Did Je- was Jesus really born of a virgin? You know, did, did He really die? Uh, uh, was He really God in human form? Were those miracles real? Did He really raise from the dead bodily? And so this is theological liberalism that starts to creep in even into Baptist churches. That was in the late 1800s. And really what they were questioning was not the Baptist faith all the Baptist doctrines, they were questioning the Bible, weren't they? Was the Bible the real authority? That's Again, that's where Luther started. That's where, where Luther came to understand that it wasn't the Pope. It was the Bible that was the final authority. And now this is being questioned. Well, by 1930, almost every Protestant denomination in America, remember the Protestant denominations I was mentioning earlier? Lutherans, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, um, and, and several others, Almost every single one of those Protestant groups in America had been captured in some way by theological liberalism. And eventually, denominations splintered as those who were holding on to orthodox beliefs of the Scripture and those who were not. 
They started to pull away from anybody who was who was starting to espouse that. And so the fundamentalists in the 1930s and 40s sought to preserve Orthodox Christianity by withdrawing from an increasing secular and irreligious culture. And it's really in that time period when our church was formed. It was in April of 1939 that a group of concerned believers met in Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Luther's home to consider the leading of the Holy Spirit to start an independent, fundamental Baptist church in the city of Royal Oak. And there were six couples that attended that first meeting. And after they prayed, uh, the group decided that the Lord was leading them to hold services in the old congregational church on 13 Mile and Rochester, uh, at 13 Mile between Rochester and Main Street. The building at that time was owned by the Women's Club of Royal Oak, and they rented it for $8 per week. An organizational council met on June 4, 1939, to recognize the new church called Oak Missionary Baptist Church, the name of our church originally. And the church was chartered with its 11 members, including the pastor, Dr. D.O. Calvin. He was uh, voted unanimously to be the pastor, and Thomas Luther was the clerk. And so at the very beginning of our church, we had Luther and Calvin. Pretty, pretty good start. In March of 1941, a committee was formed to secure a lot here on Rochester Road and and erect a building. And in 1942, the first unit of the building was completed and services were held. Pastor Calvin led the church until 1956 when he resigned to form another church. And in November of 1956, Dr. John Hunter came to be the pastor. And during his pastorate, he changed the name from Oak Missionary Baptist Church to Ambassador Baptist Church and Bible Institute of Royal Oak. Uh... Were you here during Pastor Hunter or what? No? Okay, I know uh, Mary and Karen were both here, I think, during Pastor Hunter. Yeah, so that was, uh, he was here until 1956. And then uh, following Pastor Hunter came Pastor Edward Boone, who shepherded the church from uh, 1965 to 1967 for two years. And then in 68, the church called... Uh, Jack Richard as the pastor. If you were here last year for the uh, 75th anniversary, he was the shorter guy that preached. Um, excellent preacher. Love that man. I know a lot of you love him as well. Is that when you came, Clayton? Okay, so that was from 68 to 73. And during his time, he he did a huge renovation on the auditorium, flipping the 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 uh, auditorium around. It used to be the the front was back here, and and the uh, the back doors were right by the street. And then in 1973, Pastor McLaughlin came. Uh, again, he was here last year preaching. He was here the year before preaching uh, during the summer as well. And he's now here in Madison Heights going to Grace of Birmingham. Under his leadership, uh, Pastor McLaughlin, obviously very good with money. Maybe not obviously, but he he paid down all that remodeling project that, that went down. Or he led the church, I should say, to do that. I think um, that was a wise decision. It it um, put our church in a good position financially so that we were out of debt. And um, and after 20, 25 years of service, our longest tenured pastor, um, he resigned in 1998. And then following him, James Lawler was here for a year. And, and then in 2000, Pastor Talbert came. So who was here during Pastor Talbert? When you, you started coming during Pastor Talbert, Stacy? Okay. 
So um, Pastor Talbert came from 2000 to 2008, and then in in um, let's see, in 2009 the church called me to be the pastor, and I am still here. So our goal is the same though as it was back in 1517, and the same or I should say our goal is the same as it was in 1939, 1517, and during the early church, and that is that we would be a community of believers who are committed to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And by the grace of God, we're committed to that same gospel that the Christians stood for and many even died for to proclaim Christ who is the same yesterday and today and forever. All right, next week uh, we have Tim Schmig here. The following week we'll have Why Join a Church? What's so important about joining a church? Some of you, many of you have already done that, so um, you'll be reminded about these things and see the importance of church membership again. And I, again, I think all of these classes are critical to our understanding. We need to be reminded about them. And then those who haven't joined, it's a good opportunity to see why we we think it's so important. Any questions or comments on our history? Bob? Yes. Okay. So it started in England and then came over here. Right. Right. And that this is where they mainly grew. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Baptist Church didn't come out of the Puritan Church, though. The Baptist Church right. came out of the Congregationalist Church. Right. But very similar. They considered reformed. Yes. Absolutely. And they would be very close to, to what we believe doctrinally, probably. I'm trying to think, yeah, as far as all the other denominations, Puritans would probably be the closest. They would have been, uh, they would have come from Protestants as well, but I'm not sure exactly what what brand. I would guess that they would come out of the Church of England, uh, the Anglican Church, but I don't know for sure. Um, I'd have to look back at my notes. I know we have a class on church history that we teach that's um, six, seven weeks or something like that. And in there, I think we discussed that. So I'd have to look back at those notes. But All right, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for the foundation uh, that you have uh, provided for us. We, in many ways, see ourselves as standing on the shoulders of men and women who have gone before us and who have held fast to the faith that was given to us by the apostles. And we want to um, carry on the baton, so to speak, and uh, and pass it on to the next generation. So help us to be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.